I always say that in a way I have the unfair advantage of having gotten to meet really awesome people in different parts of the world that uh, didn't get those chances. And I think I, I just got to realize it before a lot of people are, are realizing it now. But when you speak with an accent, when you don't look like this you know, Stanford graduate turned founder, it's really hard to make it. So that definitely influenced how we ideated it. This interview is with Alberto Arenaza, who graduated with the inaugural cohort for Minerva Schools, a college experience that's probably very, very different from the one that you had. He now heads up, along with Michael Norea, Transcend Network. Transcend has a completely free fellowship for founders focused on the future of education and work, some of which they ultimately invest in. So I grew up in Spain, uh, Madrid. I grew up in the city. I got really lucky early in my high school years. I, I got the chance to go to the U.S. and do my junior year of high school there. Northern Massachusetts. And I think that was the first experience I had outside of my hometown. And I got really excited about the idea of traveling. I was pretty set on studying abroad for college. And the U.S. was just a little bit too expensive as a university path. So I ended up going to the U.K. So I did my first year of university in Scotland, which I guess wasn't too far from home, but it was pretty different. And after a year there, I was at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, where I was a part of really large programs. And I think there was something that wasn't quite right for me from that experience. It felt like I didn't really have an ability to change anything about my educational experience. And there was something that I didn't like. The only lever that I could kind of pull to, to make some changes was really to fill out surveys and pray for, for some changes a year after. So when I heard about Minerva, which I think I just read an article about it at some point and uh, bookmarked it. And I think the biggest thing was thinking about almost like flipping the model to be able to have a lot of agency over my own educational experience, to be able to uh, incorporate a lot of things that, that I was trying to do and learn on my own into my actual educational experience, have those things actually factor into my, my grades and my actual experience of the school. And so I decided to join. When I joined, there had been one pilot of uh, roughly 25 students, which was the founding class. And I joined with the inaugural class. So the, the initial group took a gap year while we were doing our freshman year. They joined us in our second year and we graduated all together. So I graduated in I guess last year, and I've been in San Francisco ever since. Can you talk a little more about what is most different about Minerva Schools? Is it the people? Is it the model? What is it? Yeah, so I think the, the model is the foundation for a lot of the other differences. So in my previous experience at university, you can actually look into the financials of a lot of these universities. And when I did, I started looking into data, and I think it was roughly 60% of the costs of actually providing an education revolve around just sustaining the buildings. And it was always thought of as a pretty hardcore constraint until technology allowed us to separate those concepts, right? On one hand, there's the educational part, and the other is the actual physical experience. And what Minerva did is that it, it flips that model again to basically do all the instruction online while you're traveling to different parts of the world with all the students. So because you don't have an actual campus that you need to do your classes in, you can do those classes 
through real-time seminars whenever and whatever you want. So you basically log into class at, let's say, 10 a.m. And it's as if it was a Zoom call with other 15 students and a teacher that gets to join from whatever they are. And that allows you to change a lot of things about the educational experience. And you basically do end up doing your degree over seven different world cities. And because I was in the first year, I think a lot of the students that joined were kind of on a similar mission to take a lot of agency over their own education. And I, I very much connected with, with that ethos um, from students. I would say now that I've gone through those four years, the, the number one thing in my mind is that the students that joined and we've kind of gone through a very intense experience together and a, a really formative one. So I would say that's definitely the biggest part of my experience. The traveling part has been really important. So you go to seven different countries. You start in San Francisco, you go to uh, Berlin, Buenos Aires, Hyderabad in India, Seoul, London, and Taipei. And so that is also a really big part of, of my experience. I'm lucky to have a lot of people that I can hit up every time I go back to these cities in a lot of places uh, with a lot of memories. And I would say there's another aspect, which is the educational model, which is very much focused on active learning and just moving everything that has to do with lectures and learning as a teaching as a kind of information transfer, taking that uh, to your own time so that you can learn that whenever you, you, you need it. And then coming into class, ready to discuss those insights from the things you've read in your own time with, with your classmates. So I thought that was also a really interesting model that definitely influenced my decision to join and has definitely influenced the way that I think about just in general experiences, online and offline experiences. Yeah. So I think that was critical to understand just as far as the way you and Michael arrived at the initial concept for Transcend Network. Now you work with founders literally across the world. So how did that come to be and why did you feel like it was something that needed to exist at this point in time? Yeah. One of the biggest things was just going to all these different parts of the world, meeting really awesome founders, and then seeing the struggles that they went through when it came to pitching to a VC, when it came to uh, working with investors or other partners in different parts of the world. And I always say that in a way, I have the unfair advantage of having gotten to meet really awesome people in different parts of the world that uh, didn't get those chances. And I think I just got to realize it before a lot of people are, are realizing it now. But it's a matter of time until we realize that talent really is equally distributed around the world. It's just that opportunity isn't. And when you speak with an accent, when you don't look like this you know, Stanford graduate turned founder, it's really hard to make it. And so that definitely influenced how we ideated Transcend. So just to give you kind of a, a brief overview of what we do, we find founders that are working on different problems around the future of learning and work around the world. And we support them through a, a fellowship that's a, a fellowship for early stage founders where we connect them to a community of other entrepreneurs. We give them access to operators around the world that come in and do workshops, do more like fireside chats. And lastly, we connect them to other investors and networks of ours that we've built over the last few years. So it's very much based on this idea that uh, talent is equally distributed around the world, but not all those companies are ready to receive an investment. It takes a little bit more time and we're very kind of people-centric in the way that we think about our work. So we work with these founders really early on in their current stages of their project. And then we end up investing in some of the companies that go through the program that are ready to take on some capital. So whether it's as, as an angel check or by putting together an angel syndicate. And the idea came about when Michael Norea, who's my co-founder, and, and I met up in London. 
and realized we were both thinking about similar issues. We were thinking about um, the space in a similar way. We were pretty aligned in, in the way we were thinking about the education world and, and trying to take a broader approach to it rather than just think about K-12 products. And then lastly, we were also dissatisfied with the way that traditional investors were thinking about this space, where if you think about the strongest investors in the US, in China, in Europe, most of them do 95% of their investments are in their own regions. And we felt like there was also an opportunity to be a little bit more geographically dispersed and distributed. And so those are kind of the core pieces that inform the way that we're thinking about Transcend and supporting these founders really early on through a fellowship that is it's really just free. We don't take any equity or any fees. And, and we work with these founders really early on so that when they're ready, we can come in and support them in their journey with, with capital. And what we're focused on right now is scaling this fellowship. So we just graduated this week, 19 founders that went through our first fellowship. And this year, we're going to run another program, probably with 10 times the, the number of founders. So we'll probably get to 200 founders going through the program. And we're pretty focused on that. And we think that once we, we figure that out, the investment part will kind of become evident over time. But we're still pretty open-minded about that. And our goal in the end is to raise capital to be able to invest in those companies. But we want to take our time and do things right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're looking to scale the fellowship. Has observing some of these different boot camps struggle a bit with balancing that scale with continuing to achieve high placement rates factored into your thinking at all? Even though obviously what you're doing is different. Yeah. I think... uh, our work is a little bit different in that we don't have a very clear outcome for when these companies graduate and we don't need to fund, uh, have them fundraise for it to be a success, right? Uh, a lot of these, these founders are probably three or four years away from actually starting a business that will work. And maybe this is not the project that will make it for them, but we still want to get involved. And so I think when we think about scaling, it's a little bit different because as we scale, the community becomes much more valuable for, for those founders. So that was the main driver behind wanting to do this. And then the second aspect is that it better informs our thesis as we think about our, our work more globally. So I spent the last four years of my life around the world. I'm in San Francisco now for the next probably six months until I, if the, the virus doesn't get too crazy, I'll spend the next few months in different parts of the world. I don't yet know what the plan is, but I plan to go to a lot of these hubs and these first iterations of the, of the fellowship are allowing us to increase the reach of our work. We're getting a lot of referrals for other founders. And that's the second factor as to why we wanted to scale this fellowship, because we find that we can be much more effective at actually reaching these founders in, in emerging markets. So I think it, it is a little bit different from the bootcamp model, but there's always challenges with scale for sure. And you spoke a little bit about some of these different theses that you have. I wish that more firms, more organizations would publish them publicly on Notion as you guys have done. Can you unpack this concept of squares versus playgrounds in the context of online learning communities? Yeah, we have a big part of our thinking. It goes through the newsletter that we write every two weeks. And every two weeks when we send out the newsletter, we update our open thesis, which um, are easily accessible to anyone that, that wants to read them in. One of those theses for us is that as technology is becoming much more widespread and at the consumer level, there's a whole new wave of opportunities for learning companies built through online communities. And I guess online communities are not new by 
any uh, measure. But we believe that we're kind of at a crossroads where we have all this technology that's continuing to improve, allowing places like Minerva to scale their classes to hundreds of students. Zoom, which I guess now it's more relevant than ever for learning environments and places like Slack uh, for communications, which are, they've been around for a long time, but this is, feels like it's kind of a perfect storm where it's just really easy to spin up this interesting online learning community. So the analogy of a playground versus a square is one that we've thought a lot about with regards to online learning communities. There's a really good book uh, called Get Together. And Get Together, it's basically a playbook for building successful communities. And one of the kind of main mantras at, in, in the beginning stages is you got to first find the community that you want to uh, work with. And then secondly, you need to find something to do together. And when I think about a square versus a playground, a playground is a space that is in a way constrained because it's giving you an object that there's a very clear way of interacting with it. So it, it is a little bit less creative sometimes as opposed to a square where you have all the free space that you want and you can interact with it however you want. Whenever you have an object that you can interact with and you can think about it almost as levers, that also creates a very, almost like a ritual uh, where everyone understands over time how to interact with that object. So if you think about it as like an, an online learning community that could be built on Reddit, for example, there's a very clear set of levers that you can use within Reddit to communicate with the other uh, community members. So you can upvote things, you can post stuff. And those are the main ways that everyone will understand within a few minutes of being in that community, how they can interact with one another. So the barriers to creating this kind of interesting playgrounds have been lowered in the last few years to a point where now you can basically start these kind of interesting learning communities using existing tools out there and, and start monetizing them right away. So that's something we're really excited about. We're still exploring how that might be turned into sustainable businesses, but it's something we, we keep a close eye on and something we think it's, it's, it's going to be really, really big in the next few decades. Yeah, I think a concern, a common concern that people raise with the rise of remote work and some of these online boot camps is the lack of physical interaction and the chance at serendipity. So how, how do you think about that in terms of your fellowship and trying to facilitate those types of interactions? So the way we think about how physical interactions might change through uh, the rise of remote work and other, the increasing amount of time that people spend uh, online is that it's obviously not going to remove that need. It's just going to transform the way that that um, actually happens. So I think a really good example is if you think about online learning as in terms of waves, uh, at first it was just the static websites, right? Just a, a blank site uh, with text on it. Then we moved into videos and, and different types of audio and MOOCs came around. Thirdly, we have a wave of online courses that are more like boot camps where you actually get involved with other peers uh, online and the completion rates are much, much higher. And I think the fourth wave will be where you actually integrate with a physical space a lot more. So we're working with a company that went through a fellowship called ShiftUp and the founder, Ray, is, thinks a lot about this question and he's definitely inspired the way that I think about this, which is that we've been putting more and more stuff online and building more of our lives there. And now we need to reinvent how that is going to affect our physical spaces. So they create learning gyms where if you're learning something within a program, let's say you're a student at Lambda School or you're doing a nano degree in um, Udacity, you can use one of their spaces to, to go out there, 
find other people that are doing the same course, learn with them, and then have the, the support of a, a learning coach that's going to be helping you uh, in your learning journey. So that's the way that I, I think about it. I think there's, there's a whole new wave of in, interactions between the physical spaces and the online spaces. Uh, and I think the main difference is that instead of starting with a physical space, which is how universities used to be built, right? Like you buy the building or you buy the land, you build up a university, and then you offer uh, services. It's going to move away from the balance sheet into uh, partnerships. And there's going to be someone who manages the space and then places that are built online first and then utilize the space whenever it's needed on demand. So that's kind of how we think about the new interaction with the physical spaces. And with all this in mind, how do you and Michael think about the future of more traditional higher education here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a really difficult question because it's a very complex issue, but it's really interesting to think about higher ed in the U.S. because on one hand, this student debt question is really difficult to understand for people who didn't grow up in, in the U.S. Uh, so I definitely needed to like make sure that I got it right when I talked to people at first. Like, so you tell me there's a... $1.6 trillion in debt. Why would anyone pay this much? And there's still a lot of demand for college. We're starting to see some some drops in, in interest, but at the macro level, there's still a lot of interest. And so I think as an outsider, I tend to, to see it as something that is going to inevitably change. And there should be lower demand for a, a university system in which the business model pushes all the schools to push up the tuition prices. At the same time, I think universities in the U.S. have been much faster to adopt innovative practices uh, than universities in Europe, for example. So uh, Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, ASU, they've all been adopting blended models or, or fully online models. I think there's a lot of interesting innovation also in community colleges, places like Calbright in California. So while I think the U.S., is kind of an outlier space in terms of how much demand there is for a college and how expensive it is. At the same time, I see a lot of innovation happening. So when people think about higher ed as something that's going to explode at some point, I think it will slowly deflate in a few different ways. I think a lot of new students will be channeled into more competency-based programs where if you're a full-time or part-time worker, um, you can access this skills training on demand. I think another part of that will go into new online programs. And then I think there's going to be another part of uh, college that is going to remain the same way it is, where if you're an 18-year-old student, there's a lot of incentives to go to college and explore new parts of your life from an emotional, social, professional point of view. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So I think rather than it being a bubble that will burst, I think it will deflate and slowly move into NIF four or five different directions. Yeah, yeah. I can say having grown up in suburban US, it's very much ingrained in the culture where it's not, is going to a traditional college right for you. It's more so where are you going to go to college? Right, right. And I think a lot of families are not ready to, to send their kids to uh, a vocational school for software engineering or whatever it is. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these new alternatives to college are closer to a vocational school than to college. Because at the end of the day, what what they care about is the placement that you can get at the end of uh, the program. So I, I agree. I think the, the majority of it is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. And then you spoke to skill training, job retraining. How do you think about the future of job retraining for people that are already in the workforce, but maybe they feel they're falling behind or they're not necessarily excited about the job that they're doing at the moment? Yeah. yeah. 
So I think one, one of the biggest misconceptions in this uh, space is that artificial intelligence is going to take over our jobs and uh, that we're going to have a robot shaking our hands like in all these stock photos. And it, it's interesting because I think the, the biggest misconception is that AI does not automate jobs. They, they don't care to actually put a specific person out of business. It's companies that invest in technologies that can do certain tasks in a more efficient way. And when I think about that, I, I don't think employment as a concept is going to go away anytime soon because it's something that gives us dignity. It's something that gives us social stability. And so when I think about the future of work from that perspective, I think companies are going to have to increase their investment in upskilling by an incredible amount. I, I just think that it's something we're still at the very early stages of figuring it out, but there's going to be a lot more investment into upskilling within the companies where we prepare people for jobs that incorporate technology in new ways rather than a, a massive uh, disruption of the labor force. I think universities are, are going to lose a lot of that training to employers that will be willing to invest into that. And I think we'll also need better training resources from the employers. So if you think about the learning and development space, so corporate learning products, the NPS and the Net Promoter Score for the industry as a whole is minus 25. Degreed, which is a company, it's kind of a leader in the space, does a yearly report, and they found that to be the industry average. So I think in many ways, the, the way that employers think about training is not maximizing for the learning that, that happens from the employee side, but it's rather to maximize the utility from the L&D manager. And I think there's going to be a lot of big changes in that space. There's really interesting companies like Strive Talent who are trying to bring a lot of aspects of software and also the traditional training industry together through a blended solution. And I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in, in that space because I think employers are just going to end up taking on a lot more of a role than they have previously because they're going to see all these changes in skill development and they're going to see that universities are probably not incentivized to adapt fast enough. So they're going to carry that load and I think it's just the industry as a whole will have to really step up. Yeah. Yeah. And at Transcend, it seems like you're at the forefront of a lot of this change, especially with coronavirus, remote life is very much top of mind. What yeah. goals do you guys have going forward? I know you had mentioned expanding the fellowship. Yeah. So I, I guess in the short term, our goal is for us to run this uh, next iteration of the fellowship, roughly 200 founders by the end of this year. We have some goals internally as to uh, the type of founders that we want to work with, where we want them to come from, the, the kind of diversity ratios that we want to hit. And then I think for me personally, it's one of the most rewarding things has been meeting a lot of these founders in person. So I spent most of February on the road and I've got to meet uh, five or six of these founders. And a personal goal of mine is to be able to meet more of them uh, over the next year. And then probably in about a year, year and a half, once we figured out exactly what the best way for us is to invest in these companies, we'll want to raise capital to be able to invest in these companies. But we're taking kind of a long-term view on that because we don't believe that it's responsible to simply just take a VC model as, as the model that we're going to run with. I think there's a lot more reflection that needs to happen. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about the investment space to also consider other alternatives um, because there's just a lot to be thought about. And yeah, so I think that's a bit of a longer term view as to 
what we want to do, but we'll continue investing in founders and experimenting with different forms of investment. Mm-hmm. How many times in February did you get confused for Adam Newman? Well, I think we're maybe at five so far. (laughs) It's been happening more than weekly, which is um, pretty ridiculous. The most ridiculous one happened in New York when an employee of of WeWork that I went to work at actually thought I was Adam Newman and she freaked out. Uh, (laughs) She was glad to to learn that I was was not. (laughs) After she heard me speak, she figured out my accent. My accent was Spanish and not, not Israeli. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it, it's led to a lot of jokes. Follow me on Twitter to see uh, the, the continued uh, updates on on this. Whenever I get a uh, a text or something, I, I have a thread where I just update it. So, <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, before I let you go, Asher and I ask everyone we have on the podcast this question: What are some books and podcasts other than Get Together that have had a large impact on your thinking and your life? Yeah, awesome. So, in terms of podcasts, I have a few that I really like. I'll start with Venture Stories by Village Global. I think that's a, a really awesome podcast for anyone in the startup world. Really good questions from Eric Torenberg. He's one of my favorite podcast hosts. There's a, for the Spanish speakers, there's one, uh, it's called Nucleo Distante. And what they do is there are two musicians that are based out of Mexico City and they interview different artists and they talk about the, the songs that they've made um, and they try to kind of break it down and understand different influences. Uh, so that's one of my favorite ones. Origins by Notation Capital is uh, consistently uh, one of my favorite ones. Um, and it's got really awesome audio quality, which is also kind of important to me. And I think the last one would be Arc Invest has a, a podcast called FYI, which is just a really wonderful analysis of fundamental trends in technology. And then in terms of books, I think with books and with music in general, I like to recommend what I've been uh, reading recently more than like my all-time favorites so i guess some books that i've been uh reading recently would be flatland it, it's kind of a, an interesting fiction novel uh shorter book that i read recently where good ideas come from by uh, stephen johnson which analyzes the different kind of innovation ecosystems over history and I guess one that I read a while ago, but I really liked was Travels with Herodotus by Richard Kapitzinski, who is a Polish uh, journalist and a photographer who spent a lot of time traveling around the world in the middle of the 20th century when there were not a lot of journalists going to Africa, to Asia, Latin America, and he's got some fascinating stories. Awesome. We will link to the Transcend website as well as your guys awesome newsletter you're on twitter what's your handle where else can people find you yeah so i am fairly active on twitter try not to be too active but you can find me at, uh, at alberto alnaza which is uh, alberto a-r-e-n-a-z-a and yeah you can find me there and uh, the newsletter is where i write most uh, often perfect alberto a thousand thanks for coming on the show yeah, first thanks Ethan. This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.